In their 2021 book, Dissenting POWs, sociologist Jerry Limke and POW researcher Tom Wilbur described the effect that myth-making around Vietnam POWs had in the United States. With no anti-war left to nurture the political capital of dissenting POWs who returned home from Vietnam, and no Jane Fonda to champion them, the POW story would be hijacked by the political right to stir public unsettledness about what really happened over there. The right's agenda to feed suspicions that the government was not telling the truth about the war as they cast aspersions on the loyalty of the anti-war movement was prelude to the revanchism of Ronald Reagan's presidency that would popularize the paranoia about Washington insiders as seditious fifth columnists. Hollywood's contribution to that agenda would be twofold. First, displace the image of dissenting POWs and eventually all real-life POWs with that of mythical POWs abandoned by the government and left behind in Southeast Asia. And second, recast the image of radical veterans from the political problem they were into a mental health problem. Gene Wilbur, Bob Chenoweth, and their brothers against the war who had formed Vietnam veterans against the war years earlier were better understood as traumatized victims than as warriors transformed into peacemakers by their experience in Vietnam. As a genre, the POW MIA films consolidated Nietzschean themes flowing from 1950s films such as The Rack that called out the feminized post-Second World War culture that had sapped American will to war. Filmic images of POWs languishing in bamboo cages were metaphors for the American greatness and masculinity lost in Vietnam that awaited recovery and return. Ronald Reagan's proclamation that, quote, government is the problem, not the solution, was a call to arms for avenging Rambo-esque vigilantes who could counterweight the tax-paying public reluctance to fight again. Reagan's signature slogan, quote, it's morning in America. Summon the Back to the Future sentiment seeking restoration of a prelapsarian America whose men had been waylaid by the women's movement, whose work ethic has been eroded by government entitlements, and whose pride in the military victories of the Second World War had been insulted by the anti-war movement and the Vietnam veterans associated with it. to ending the myth it's me brian i'm here with my friend munya and we have a very special guest but munya uh i've been inspired by our friends at big soy naturals to to be vulnerable to make myself oh wow that's a that's a big step brian i'm impressed yeah i know can i be vulnerable with you today munya please please i've been waiting for this day So all the way back, I'm going to take you all the way back to January of 2003 in a little town called Lubbock, Texas, uh, where I was at a meeting with probably a dozen students and like a single faculty member 
where we were talking about like forming a formal anti-war group, right? So we had done some protests at Texas Tech uh, about the Afghan war. The Iraq war, of course, is inevitable and about to happen, right, uh, in March. And so we're like, maybe we should actually be like a formal anti-war group and have a meeting to talk about what that means, what, you know, what kind of organization we're trying to make. And, you know, uh, as the meeting came to a close, a young 19-year-old me said to the crowd assembled there, uh, now we want to make sure that we don't do anything uh, stupid, like yell crazy stuff or spit on soldiers like they did during Vietnam, or nobody's going to take us seriously. (laughs) And after the meeting, uh, a history professor who was attending uh, and it had been in, you know, SDS in San Diego uh, in the late 60s during the war and stuff like that. She came up to me and she said that she found my comments interesting, which I later came to learn from her meant uh, she had criticisms. <laughs> <laughs> but she said uh, I should really read a book. And she handed me a slip of paper. On that paper were the words, the spitting image, Jerry Lemke. Needless to say, I went to the library the next day. I picked this book up, and uh, I got to say, few books have sort of rocked the way that I look at the world and think about history in the way that this book did. In that uh, It turned out uh, the documentaries I had been watching all my childhood, uh, like Rambo and The Deer Hunter, were in fact uh, not true uh, to life statements about the world. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And it it really changed the way I think about things. So since then, Jerry Lemke's continued to write about how control over the memory of the Vietnam War has not only distorted our understanding of the past, but has hamstrung the efforts at liberatory politics in the present. His books, The Spitting Image, Hanoi Jane, and his new work with Tom Wilbur, Dissenting POWs, are all must-reads as far as we are concerned. Uh, We'll have links to them in the show notes and everything. Uh, But today, it's our great pleasure to have him on Ending the Myth. Professor Limke, how are you today? (laughs) Well, great. That that was a terrific uh, introduction. Uh, Really sets the stage uh, really nicely. Uh, I have an an anecdote that goes along with that just perfectly, if you don't mind, uh, as a a place to start. when the um, uh, Persian Gulf War uh, began and, and, the, and the U.S. Uh, sent troops, there was uh, immediately, uh, uh, you know, college students hit the streets in, in protest uh, of that. And um, a student uh, came to me and, and said he had heard stories about Vietnam veterans having been spat on by anti-war activists. And uh, did, I, did I know about these? And at the time, um, this was kind of news to me, although it was beginning to come out in, in, the, in the press. And, and um, <laughs> I, I, said, I said, no, but he was really given pause by this, right? He, he now had second thoughts about being out and, and being opposed to the war. And uh, that did indeed then begin to put a damper, you know, on on uh, uh, anti-war activism. And then again, at the time of the the, the second round of wars, uh, the one that you're talking about in 2003, 
all of that really repeated. And students were coming to me. By that time, I had a book in my hand. <laughs> so I could say, here, read this, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it adds those stories. Those stories, Brian, absolutely had a dampening effect uh, on, um, on the movement. And, uh, and, and, and they, they worked the way that people who were telling these stories wanted it to work, right? They were intimidating. And, um, and um, yeah, <laughs> so what a great place to start. Yeah, and, I'm, it, and I mean, maybe we could uh, just ask you the question then uh, that sure. this person asked you. I mean, just to be 100% clear, were returning soldiers spat on by angry anti-war protesters at the San Francisco airport? <laughs> mm. Well, the easy answer, and of course the best answer, is that there's no evidence that that ever happened. That's the thing that I went looking for when I first heard these stories. I went looking for newspaper accounts. I look, you know, I began looking in historical accounts, anti-war accounts, pro-war, and there was nothing. And then what I was even more surprised about is that looking back, uh, not only no evidence that it was happening, but no, no evidence that anybody at the time was claiming. Uh, that it was happening. And then friends of mine, professors who were scholars of myth and legends, uh, told me that, well, you know, this is one of the uh, one of the one of the ways in which myths and legends reveal themselves to be such. It's the time gap between when the event was supposed mm -hmm. to have happened and when be people began to talk about it having happened. And so that was one of the first kind of triggers for me that that then that then set set, set me off, and um, uh, to this day, really there is only one what I consider to be a one credible claim of a Vietnam veteran having said he was spat on. Um, uh, he was recorded for a CBS news broadcast, I think, in 1972, and it supposedly occurred at the San Francisco airport. And then later, several years later, he was re-interviewed, and that time he said it happened on the university campus at, uh, at, at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, by that time, of oh. course, there are many, many more claims of Vietnam veterans having been spat on, but they were very much after the fact. You know, they were 10 years after they're supposed to have happened or 15 years after they're supposed to have happened. And um, uh, again, his claim, right, was made in 1972. So it was not, um, you know, t not, ten, not 10 years later. So there are, you know, nowadays, and, and well, even, well, in, you know, in the early 2000s, um, the number of claims, claims <laughs> of having been spat on, mm -hmm. you know, really, uh, really grew. And I began collecting them. I, I now I have a spreadsheet with, I guess, about 300 uh, claims, um, you know, with some details on it, when the claim was made, when it supposedly happened who the spitters were, and, and, and so forth. And uh, so I, I've donated that spreadsheet to the UMass Boston um, Library Archives. 
and and I don't keep track anymore. I, I sometimes write them down, but I don't, I don't always know then what happens what happens to those. Um, now you you did uh, bring up the San Francisco airport, <laughs> and um, <laughs> well, well, one of the, one of the ways, and I'm sure you know this, one of the ways to attack the validity of these claims, right, is to is to work around the edges of them, uh, the the details about the story, right. Uh, in this case, the San Francisco airport. I was spat on at the San Francisco airport. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but the, the, the documentable thing there is that planes from Vietnam did not land at the San Francisco airport, right? So I can't say yeah. whether you were really spat on or not. But I can say that your story of being spat on at the San Francisco airport cannot be true because you did not land at the San Francisco airport. You may have landed at Travis Air Base near San Francisco. But if that was the case, protesters could not have gotten on the base for any reasons, much less, you know, spitting on returning troops and then not being arrested, in which case there would be a news. <laughs> Newspaper story <laughs> about that, you see, and so and so it goes. Uh, I mean, a lot of the stories have mm-hmm. it that, well, one in particular that I quote in the book, you know, we we all came back with hand grenades because we were told that we would be met by hostile. No, you weren't. You you weren't told that. No, and and, <laughs> and, and, and no, you could not have gotten on a plane. You know, in San, in Vietnam, returning to the states and been carrying hand grenades and or or any other kinds of weapons. So that's how you, you, you kind of work around the edges of these stories, and and that's mm-hmm. the way I did anyway, as a way of debunking, mm-hmm. um, debunking it as as a myth. Yeah, I mean that, that that is like that is so so interesting, and that that makes sense because, like you said, you know, you really can't tell whether that specific event happened, but at least the circumstantial evidence behind it, you know, you can kind of piece those pieces together, sure. right? And you know, you make a really strong case that you know these things do not uh, probably have not really occurred at all. Um, so I mean, like this is like a thing, right? This is how like a myth really gets made and is uh, you know done for a specific purpose. Um, it's so interesting to me because like, you know, there's no real uh, like sources to confirm it. Yes. Everyone will insist on believing it. Right. Like no matter how much oh, you yeah. tell them. Right. Thank goodness you have a book. Right. That you can give them. Right. But if I'm just, you know, sitting there <laughs> telling someone like they'd be like, no, no, no. Right. So how does a myth like this become so widely accepted? Well, in the case of of, of this of this myth, it was really the media. Um once some reporter someplace, you know, got a hold of this um, and, you know, maybe didn't report it as, as a, well, reported it as a fact that some Vietnam veterans are saying that they were spat on. I mean, that was a fact. Vietnam veterans, some Vietnam veterans or men claiming to be Vietnam veterans, um, you know, they, they were saying this and reporters were picking this up. You know, putting it on air, you know, so, sometimes inviting these veterans on to newscasts. 
and that's really that that's really where where it, where it began to catch hold. Uh, it was it was a media event. It was a media story, and um, uh, I suppose you can ask the question: So why did the media run with it? Mm-hmm. And I suppose the answer there, right, is that uh, they sensed a market a market for this, um, and um, and and sensed that there are plenty of Americans at that point who are not sympathetic to the anti-war movement. Troops have just been sent. Yeah. Uh, to Kuwait. Um, There's a lot of hoopla around that. And, um, and there's, there's, there's plenty of animosity against the anti-war movement, you know, still hanging over from the 1960s and the 1970s. And so reporters are thinking, Hey, you know, this is, this is going to catch the attention of some viewers and some listeners, right? Let's, let's go with it. So I think that's maybe that's kind of the short the short story on that, but I think mm-hmm. that's that's bas- basically it. And then, like about a lot of other news stories, it it develops its own momentum uh, as it as it goes along. Yeah, and I think you know the fact that I, I guess you know maybe taking a shot in the dark from you know your book and just I guess my sort of understanding of this is that maybe it hitting mass consciousness was the the Rambo, you know, monologue, <laughs> you know, at the end of the first Rambo movie, where he sure. talks about getting spit on or whatever. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, there's been some efforts recently to, I guess, try and reclaim this movie of like, oh, no, but it's all about how cops are bad or something. But in reality, like, it's a story of wounded masculinity. Uh, and I think it the fact that this takes place in the middle of Reagan's first term is what's actually important, right? Like, that this is about a Reagan, Reagan bringing in a sort of uh, revanchist politics back to America to counter the 60s and 70s. Does that yeah. seem correct? <laughs> but I think the most important thing there that, that you said was the wounded masculinity uh, part of the story. You see, that that had begun to take root um, uh, in the late 70s and, and then specifically in the 1980s with the canonization in the DSM of PTSD uh, and that, you know, Vietnam mm-hmm. veterans were, were suffering from post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. And a huge part of that had to do with their loss of pride or to use your words, the, the blow to masculinity, uh, their masculine, masculinity. And so Vietnam veterans were, at the same time that this image of anti-war veterans was beginning to catch on, right? At the very same time, then the counter-narrative to that was that lots of men had come home from Vietnam with hidden injuries, psychological wounds, uh, uh, wounds to, to, to their sense of their, their virility. Um, their sense of themselves as, mm-hmm. as 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 real men, right? So the the wounds of the war were hidden. Um, they they were they were inside. Well, and let me just add add this as well. I mean, a, a key part of PTSD um, that people have kind of forgotten, but a whole lot of the trauma was embedded in the coming home narrative. 
of rejection when they came home, you see. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and who were the rejectors <laughs> to them? Well, it was the anti-war movement, mm-hmm. right? How do we know? Well, they were spat on, right? These anti-war activists spat on. So not only had they lost the war and they're coming home and having to, you know, face a population that is kind of willing to denigrate them as not real men, right? <laughs> Supposedly, and, yeah. and with some truth, right? World War II veterans were saying, hey, we won our war, right? What's wrong with you guys, right? Mm-hmm. What, what happened there? Um, and, and there was some truth to that, right? That, 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 that there was that kind of uh, stigma. Right, that was that was projected onto Vietnam veterans by this older generation of veterans. So, um, a lot of that, a lot of that hidden injury, a lot of that trauma, you see, is also laid at the feet of the anti-war movement going into the night, going into the nineteen eighties, and so that revanchist sentiment that. You know, Ronald Reagan says it's morning in America again, right? Um, <laughs> you know, we're we're on the comeback trail. Um, a, a lot of that had to do with what correcting for the denigration of Vietnam veterans supposedly put on them by anti-war activists, right? So we have to begin to. Um, to um, kind of re- reestablish the, the pride, the the the, the validity uh, of American men uh, as as warriors, and so all of that all of that begins to cook in the 1980s uh, within within the Reagan administration. I'm sure we'll come back to some of this. I mean, Reagan's it's morning in America again, <laughs> kind of echoed in um, yeah. "Make America Great Again." I mean, it's, mm-hmm. there's a connection there. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, I mean, and maybe uh, you give your sort of thoughts on this. I mean, you know, going through your work, uh, when I initially read this is, of course, during the George W. Bush administration, but, you know, going and reading through dissenting POWs and stuff post-Trump or whatever, it just really made me think, I mean, is there a connection between sort of Trump revanchism and the fact that we were at the tail end of two almost 20 year long wars that uh, the U.S. had also lost in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. And that maybe there's something to be read into Trump's, you know, rise in that. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, the two quick things that I, that I want to say here, Trump's campaign slogan and really the, the brand, the Trump brand hats cost money, make America great again. Right. When was it great? And when was the greatness lost? Well, it was great before the war in Vietnam. It was the war in Vietnam that yeah. knocked the American Humpty Dumpty off the wall, right? It was the war in Vietnam. Um, and that's where we lost our greatness. So that's where we have to go back to pick up the pieces to begin to rebuild uh, and and uh, and 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 uh, rebuild this 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 America. Now the, the other thing to go back to 
to particularly the war in, the war in Afghanistan, when the, the U.S. made this uh, ignominious exit from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. right? We lost some, some Marines there who were killed. We supposedly left behind a lot of loyal Afghan allies. We abandoned them. And for, again, this is, this is the narrative that came out of that war. And even perhaps some mm-hmm. Americans who wanted to come home were never able to board planes. Oh, in those days of that exit, Brian, how many references were there to the exit from Vietnam? I mean, we saw replayed yes. Yes, exactly. those helicopters <laughs> lifting off of the AT&T building time and time again and comparisons made, right? It was like that or it wasn't like that or the differences. That was almost, that was, that was a very major storyline. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm watching this and I'm listening to this and I'm saying, oh my God, you think this country has put Vietnam behind it? <laughs> no way. I mean, we are still we are we are still understanding the presence through the lens of the war in Vietnam. It is it is absolutely it is absolutely the case, and and the whole Trump thing. I mean, the tap root of it, um, and the tap the tap root of that revanchism is absolutely the the war. In Vietnam, and um, I mean, so so much of the of the Trump movement, you, you could say, is still a domestic search for those internal enemies who cost us our victory in Vietnam. You see, and all of this is just being wait, just waiting to be picked up, <laughs> right, and kind of given a new spin <laughs> for the loss of these wars in Afghanistan. And, and and in Iraq. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, these pieces. I like the Humpty Dumpty expression. There's all kinds of these pieces mm-hmm. that are out there waiting to be picked up and kind of put together again for um, a post-Afghan, mm-hmm. post-Iraq um, a story, right? A whole new, a whole new story. Oh, I can just finish my thought on this. Right. Although all mm-hmm. of this is now getting getting repackaged in a much bigger narrative about the nation, about a, uh, a lost war narrative that the nation mm-hmm. is now is now living through. We're living through a post empire period of time. We, the United States, mm-hmm. is an empire in decline. Absolutely. And and you and I are living through that uh, at at this at mm-hmm. this time, and a, a lot of this stuff that we can talk about is, has now become a kind of meta meta narrative. Is a nation in trauma, not just veterans in trauma or veterans' families in trauma. All of that has now kind of gotten rescripted into a whole a whole. Nation. There was a. This is the final point on this. There was an article in in the New Yorker magazine a month or so ago 
about trauma. Uh, you may have seen it. Um, it. My title of the piece would be Trauma, Trauma, Trauma Everywhere. Right? A cult. <laughs> a, and, and this writer's thing was that now in, in, in fiction writing and now in, in um, screen, screenwriting, film scripting, I mean, mm-hmm. you gotta have you gotta have a trauma story, right? That's what is selling in literature, and yeah. that's what is selling in film. And my words were besides trauma, 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 would be a, a trauma cult that the nation the nation has gotten mm-hmm. itself engulfed in. And so now, <laughs> the final final mm-hmm. thing on this. Now it's this whole that's greater than some of the parts, but now feeds down into the parts, right? You and I might be traumatized mm-hmm. because we're living in a traumatized nation, right? Uh, we're living in a in, yeah. right. Yeah. We're, we're living. We have we haven't been traumatized because of our own experience, but we're traumatized through the the trauma culture. You see that is now dominant, or if not dominant, it's certainly a prevailing culture in American society today. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, if we could uh, return maybe to the origins of some of these myths, I I think you point out in your books that there's this, you know, the the use of these myths, whether it be spitting or any of the other things around Vietnam, Vietnam bats, you know, the, every vet has PTSD. I remember all of our, all of my teachers in middle school and high school, if they were male, were they supposedly had PTSD and everybody dropped textbooks to make them have flashbacks or whatever. <laughs> never worked. They just get mad at you. Oh my but, God. <laughs> um, oh my but, goodness. You know, wow. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, this like legend of like the Vietnam bat, you know, that you talk about is, you know, a lot of times used to hide a lot of the realities that we've talked about in previous episodes about what actually happened in Vietnam and what actually ended the war, which, you know, in your books, you talk about like, yeah, you know, uh, there was violence carried out against Vietnam vets or whatever, but that was violence carried out usually by uh, privates, enlisted men against their officers in Vietnam, (laughs) like, you know, fragging officers and things like that. But that's not the story the U.S. wants to tell. Yeah, that's not right. the story the U.S. wants to tell, though. The U.S. wants to say women spat on us when we came home or whatever, as opposed to uh, Vietnam, you know, soldiers of Vietnam didn't want to fight, you know, sure. or didn't want to be in this war. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. All, all of that. Stories like the spitting stories displace. They, they, they push off screen the things that really did happen that have maybe a kind of resemblance mm-hmm. uh, to the spitting. And the, res- the, the best thing for your listeners to watch on this particular point is David Zeiger's 2006 film, Sir, No Sir, which is about the in-service GI resistance in Vietnam to the war that they're there to fight, you see. And this story is lo- has large, large... The story was 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 in the news in the late sixties and early seventies. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were there were you know Life magazine did whole spreads on this. So this was stuff that people knew, and people were that is the American public knew at the time. But then mm-hmm. it all got pushed 
to the side. It all got pushed off screen. And there's a point there about how forgetting happens by stories like um, <laughs> um, Vietnam veterans being treated with hostility uh, when 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 they when they came home, being spat on. the The point there that I want to make is that for, for forgetting forgetting, you know, is not a passive uh, thing. Uh, we forget things when something mm-hmm. else comes and pushes that memory off screen, out, out of the mind, right? Something related to mm-hmm. it. That's how, that's, how, that's how forgetting happens. You see, it's an, it's an active mm-hmm. verb, right? It's not, not, not passive, mm-hmm. right? It's not just, oh, then a blank comes in. No, something else comes into that space, you see. And, uh, mm. and, and, and that, that goes to your real interest in myth. I mean, that's, that's one of the ways myths function, right? Myths, myths come, come in, myths come into play and, and work, quote unquote, they function as the mechanisms for forgetting what is, what is really true, what, what really did, what really did happen. And you know, mm-hmm. war, war, war stories function yeah. that way. Yeah, and and I, I kind of wanted to talk about your new book, uh, "Dissenting POWs," because I just read it this month and it was fantastic. Oh. And I uh, mm-hmm. there's uh, let's just say a lot of a lot of forgetting, uh, conscious forgetting involved here too, right? And I think one of the things that really was interesting to me about it is you're you're focusing largely on POWs, and and I hope I get this right. Uh, Hoalo Prison, right? So it's, Wa- uh, Wa- you know, so yep. probably known as the Hanoi Hilton, I guess, right. probably more yep. to our listeners. Right, um, sure. Which, you know, had largely uh, like Air Force pilots and things like that in it until uh, toward, I think, post-69, you say they started bringing guys from, you know, further inland like Army and Marines. But I thought the thing was interesting about the imagery around the POWs and the mythology built around them afterwards is this idea that you talk about there's a political war going on in Wallow Prison, as well as a maybe class war going on inside this prison between the inmates. And I, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. All of that I discovered in the course of working on that book. And that is just what is so... Mm-hmm. So rewarding uh, about writing a book like that. It's it's what it's what 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 you learn. Now, creditor to uh, the co-author Tom Wilbur, from from whom I learned a lot. Uh, who I did not know Tom Wilbur until we started. Well, shortly before we started working on on this book, but the the class, yeah, the well. The, the war going on within uh, Wallow Prison, part of that war was the political and the, and the ideological war within the prison population itself over the war. Support for the war, mm-hmm. uh, belief that it was a righteous war uh, versus those who maybe even before they had been captured <laughs> – had come to the conclusion or were coming to the conclusion that, hey, this this war isn't really something that I want to be part of. 
anyway. And then after they're taken prisoner, um, and in the course of their experience of being prison prisoners, particularly those ground troops who were captured in the South, uh, Marines and, um, and Army people, who were then moved slowly by, by foot, by hoof, by, by truck up to Hanoi. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of experiences with the Vietnamese people along the way that began to debunk these images of the Vietnamese people as, as uh, savages. And they begin to see a different face mm -hmm. of, of the Vietnamese of the Vietnamese people. So by the time they arrive in Wallow Prison, they've had a very they're bringing a, a very different experience, right, uh, uh, in, in into that into that population, and one that is kind of threatening to some of these senior ranking. Air Force and Navy pilots. A lot of them were Navy, were Navy mm -hmm. pilots who were shot down. They had flown off aircraft carriers um, on on bombing raids, and, and they were shot down. Um, so, you know, their take on this was was pretty different. Some of these senior pilots, and a lot of these guys were in their in their thirties. They were in their forties. And this was one of the first things I learned when I started getting, when I started reading the memoirs of the of the POWs, and I've read mm -hmm. thirty some of these memoirs. I don't know where I got the idea that POWs were all in their twenties, you know, young. No, most of these guys, <laughs> particularly the pilots, the pilots. I mean, these guys were were mm -hmm. older. They were graduates of Annapolis, um, the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. Um, well, most of them were, not all of them, most of them were, or graduates of the Air Force Academy. These guys had, some of them had master's degrees from Stanford, you know, um, and um, so they came into their prisoner situation <laughs> kind of committed to wanting to come home and be seen as heroes, Right. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so to be a hero, you have to have endured some real hardship, right? While, while you were being held prisoner. I mean, these savages who took you captive have, have really had to brutalize you, have, right? And you survived. You were a tough son of a gun, mm -hmm. right? You survived this. Well, here come these other guys who were younger, all right, who are taken prisoner in the South, you know, they're not afraid of the Vietnamese because they've seen mm -hmm. some good side of the Vietnamese. And then you bring in the class, mm -hmm. the class part of this. A lot of these pilots, right, their backgrounds were, if not upper class, upper middle class, right? I mean, you take somebody like John McCain, mm -hmm. right, upper class. I mean, his... His, yeah. his dad was senior commander of Navy operations in Southeast Asia or something like that. His grandfather was a Navy admiral, right? That's 
by sociological <laughs> standards, that's upper class. That's upper. That's upper class. And then you get, and then you got these guys coming up from the south. And in our book, um, we we focus on eight eight of these guys who got charged with collaboration with the enemy, essentially treason, when they came home. Mm-hmm. Very briefly, the charges were dropped eventually. But to a person, these eight were, um, uh, with a couple of exceptions, I think maybe six of the eight were African-American or um, they, they were Latinos, right? One of them, mm-hmm. uh, well, one of them was born on an Indian reservation in California. Um, mo- mother was was Native American. Father was a was a Filipino, right? Um, some of them were draftees. Some of them were not. I don't remember the exact numbers now. Um, but they were they 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 were they were working class. They were working class. Mm-hmm. And all, and almost to a person, they identified in things that they wrote, uh, the memoirs that they wrote, the interviews that they did, reveal that they identified with the Vietnamese peasants. They saw their own mm-hmm. families, you see, their own friends, their own communities that and the, that was a WTF moment for them. What am I? What am I doing here? <laughs> what kind of a yeah, what kind yeah, of a war yeah, yeah. Uh, have I been asked to fight? What what kind of a war against whom have been have have I been asked to fight? So all of this began to come to a head within the walls, so to speak, mm-hmm. of a wallow prison. And the walls is a kind of put quotes around it because the Hanoi Hanoi was really a prison complex, right? There was Wallow Prison. That was a real prison that was built by the French, right, to house Vietnamese when the French were the colonial powers administering administering uh, Vietnam. But then there were lots of other holding sites, holding pens. There were there were not prisons. They did not have bars, right? They did not have cells um, that the POWs themselves and their own memoirs referred to as rooms. <laughs> my room, not my cell, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So it was a, a, a <laughs> right. Now you, you you don't make a you don't make a hero POW. Out of somebody who had, had a room to live in, right, and yeah, and, and, and had the best food yeah. that the Vietnamese could provide under the conditions, uh, who had a basketball court, you know, to play on, who had. <laughs> This sounds great. I don't know. I'm like, you know. Sign me up, actually. I don't have that amenity in my apartment. Art supplies, you know. Um, So, yeah, um, yeah. You tell you tell the story in the book, which I I mean, it blew my mind, and I'm sure is like would be very surprising for our listeners to hear of 
Uh, one of the prisoners, I, I think the the guards find out he likes Shakespeare or something. So they take him to a Soviet Shakespearean production that's uh, happening in Hanoi and then hands him a collected works of Shakespeare book to read I yeah. guess, in his room between basketball games. <laughs> I mean, probably not what people are imagining when they hear about this. Thanks for remembering that for me. I, I would not have remembered that. But yeah, that's... That's that's in the book, and and they had also the POWs had um, a, a a pretty pretty full range of U.S. publications to read, news magazines, for example, uh, or if not read themselves, they would be read over the prison intercom system, right, uh, to them. Uh, and so the Vietnamese guards, the prison administrator, administrators, would ask a, a, for a volunteer from the POWs to read a news report uh, from, a, from a U.S. news source. Um, now, that was one of the things then that these hardcore hero POWs, your listeners can see, my air quotes <laughs> on that. On, we do on it all that. the time. It's <laughs> right. Um, you can hear you can hear my air quotes, right? Um, so these these senior the hero POWs then would would allege that the guys who read these news reports to the other prisoners were collaborating with the enemy, that that was traitorous behavior, mm-hmm. you see, for them to have engaged in. They should not, they should not have done that. Um, and um, anyway, that, that's, that's one of the many sidebars, you see, uh, to this, to the story. And, and the, we tell in the book, and it's kind of a major thread of the book, that these senior, these senior POWs. Well, I don't want to go too on too long on this, but tor- torture is is so much so central to to this narrative, right? I mean, if you weren't tortured, if mm-hmm. there was no torture, then I've already said this, right? Then there's really there's that kind of kind of what dissipates, kind of dilutes the the hero prisoner uh, storyline. So you, you got to, so some of these senior POWs then we think concocted a lot of the torture stories and themselves enforced that story on other POWs, right? And insisted mm-hmm. to them that when you, when we go home, this is the story that you need to tell, right? Uh, so guys who came in late, you, you know, in the, say, after 1970, and, you know, and a, a huge number of pilots were shot down in the so-called Christmas bombings of 1972, when the war was over, <laughs> there was a, there were, yeah. No U.S. Yeah. troops left in the South, and the U- U.S. just mm-hmm. just bombs, 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 bombs 
um, Hanoi. And lots of B-52s were shot down. You see, they were shot down. Well, these pilots arriving, arriving that late, um, or, or late, but maybe not quite that late, right? They had absolutely had no experience with torture, but they were expected to recite the party line when they when they got home. You see, and mm-hmm. and if they revealed themselves to be maybe skeptical of this torture stuff, then that set them up for possible recriminations. You see, when 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 they got home. Now a lot of that played out, you know, before ni- before nineteen seventy two, between about nineteen sixty nine and nineteen seventy two, in those years, those years in in there, um, when it's pre- pretty much agreed on, it's pretty much agreed on that there was no torture after nineteen sixty nine. So it was yeah. really the, the the years before that, you see, that the senior ranking officers, which is kind of an unofficial term, when they claimed yeah. when they claimed a lot of the torture happened, and um, there are other authors uh, who Tom and I quote, right, who you know who go into this story and. Um, and find one one author says there was a virtual curriculum that was developed by these senior ranking officers that was then enforced on these later arriving POWs as what was going to be the official story um, when when they all mm-hmm. all got home. Yeah, well, I mean, and it seems you know from your book too, like. They were sort of acting out almost their own uh, sort of drama uh, based off of memories of the Korean War, right? And that you have soldiers in the Korean War who presumably having seen what the U.S. did to Korea, which is as every bit as horrifying as what the U.S. did in Vietnam, and basically saying, like, we think this war is wrong. And the way at that time the U.S. was able to metabolize it is to just invent the concept of brainwashing and just say brainwashing must have happened. Sure. And that you have these now Vietnam POWs who are saying like, okay, a, we, we, cause now they believe the brainwashing story or like, we can't be brainwashed like those guys were, but also we have to show out better than like our Korean or Korean POW, like previous people. Right. You know, exactly. Uh, which creates this maelstrom of insanity. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so these guys, who a lot of them, I, I shouldn't generalize so much, a, a lot of them were mm-hmm. shot down over Vietnam, went into the went into their war with the idea that if I'm ever captured, right, I'm going to come home with a with a different a different look than these guys came home from Korea. Yeah. Right. I'm going to go out of my way right to to not fall into that trap of being brainwashed or or being able to be accused of being of being brain brainwashed you see so i'm going to go i'm going to go all out man <laughs> to resist first of all mm-hmm. 
anything yeah. anything that these Vietnamese guards are going to put on me, uh, I'm going to show that I am one tough SOB. And when I go home, there's going to be there's going to be a record. There's going to be things that I can point to. And you see, this is where the dissident POWs come into play. You see, I'm not a real tough guy unless I can point to you <laughs> and say, I endured the same stuff that Brian did. And and Brian, mm-hmm. Brian read those news reports on the intercom system, right? Brian went to that theater, mm-hmm. that Shakespeare theater. He did all that stuff, right? <laughs> and and I, I, I looked at the same torture that he looked at, but not me, right? Not me. I didn't, I didn't cave. I didn't give in. And that's why he got the special treatment and, and I did not. So the, there's a kind of a dialectical interplay there. You see, the, the dissident POWs, right? The dissident POWs are the opposite that are necessary to establish the authenticity of the holdout hero POWs, you see. Um, They're they're kind of created in that, that, I I call it a dialectical, you know, interspace between, they're the the, Hegelian opposites, right? That one one defines, (laughs) one defines the other. You see, one defines the other. It's like up and down. You can't have one without, one doesn't make sense without the other, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, what I think, you know, uh, given that we're, we're a show that's like gone all the way back to the origins of America too, you raise this really interesting point that there, a lot of these POW narratives of like the heroic POW really are just captivity narratives retold, right? Sure. From, you know, white settlers captured by Indians, right? And that right. the real fear isn't that the Indian's going to kill you. The real fear is the Indian's going to convert you, right? And that that maybe by being a POW, the Vietnamese might just convince you that they're right and that the U.S. empire is actually wrong. <laughs> right. And uh, I guess, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Well, one, one, one part of that, you see, is that that... Um, that I don't if it's a word de-vilifies de <laughs> it unvilifies the Vietnamese mm-hmm. right uh, it's it's the the possible attractiveness of Vietnamese culture and the Vietnamese mm-hmm. way of life um, that that appeals to something within me right within me the POW right so so these Vietnamese and, and, and Vietnamese way of life, it's, it's not all bad. There's something enticing there about that. And that was true. Mm-hmm. That was true of the captives at Jamestown in, in 1607, the John Smith story, right? What, what the leaders mm-hmm. of the colony were really afraid of <laughs> was that was the attractiveness yeah. of the the native way of life holy cow right and really interestingly on that 
as that story goes along, I mean, for a couple of hundred years, it was it was probably mm-hmm. most often women, mm-hmm. the white European women, who were attracted to that native way of life. You know, these stories go right on up to Deerfield, Massachusetts, um, in you know a century later, where where, where women went over and didn't want to come back and sometimes did come back <laughs> and then went back. <laughs> they, yeah, went back yeah. they went back. They went back. They went back to the other. So these senior, the senior officers again, um, they really tried to, um, what's the word? Uh, inoculate, uh, uh, mm-hmm. is- isolate their <laughs> under underlings, the POWs, the lower-ranking POWs, from exposure to the Vietnamese. They prohibited, for example, learning the Vietnamese language. That was mm-hmm. that was not that was not allowed. I mean, if you did something like that again, you were subject to discipline. You know, if and when uh, you got you got yeah. back home, uh, down to you know you were not you were you were not allowed to squat to eat your meals like the Vietnamese did. You weren't allowed to do that. That that was that showed that you were what's the term that anthropologists have for this? Going native. Right? And that yeah. was a yeah. that was a kind right. of a kind of symptom um, that the SROs were were looking out for um, and that they were and that they were prohibiting. So um, oh yeah I mean, this, this is a, the way I've written about that stuff, and there's there's some of that in this book. The you know the way in which this, the the POW story kind of reinvigorates that captivity narrative. Um, it may yeah, it makes yeah. it makes us it, it made the American people uh, what feel feel like the good the good people again. Right, um, we you know we are we're threatened by this external uh, uh, enemy. Um, why? Because we're good, right? Uh, the enemy of evil. Yeah. Yeah. The enemy of evil is good. How do we know we're good? <laughs> because these evil Vietnamese uh, want to kill us, right? Uh, so again, you got that mm-hmm. that interplay between between opposites going on. And that has to be in the coming home story then, right? When the POWs come home, all of that has to be uh, vivified. It all has to come out in the stories mm-hmm. that, um, that that they tell and the stories that are told about them. Yeah, I mean, that's it's really interesting. And it, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of... You know, these these POW myths are largely used to tell to retell a story of American innocence. And I'm reminded of this story. I think it's one of Rick Perlstein's books about how the the there's that group that gets formed. It's like the Vietnam, like wives of POWs or whatever that gets formed by like the RNC. But, uh, you know, Ross Pro flies them to Paris to, you know, during the negotiations, I think in 72 to go uh, like confront the Vietnamese delegation about releasing the POWs. And when the Vietnamese delegation hears them, 
they try and explain to these wives of the POWs, like, look, POWs get released after wars are over. So you should probably tell your government to end the war. One of the wives then breaks down and is like, but what am I supposed to tell my son when Christmas comes around and her, his father isn't home or whatever? And the Vietnamese delegate leans down and tells her, you should tell him that he's being punished for bombing Vietnamese children and he'll come <laughs> home when his punishment is over. And of course, they were very shocked by this and left the room very offended and taken aback. But the story is, it's as if the Vietnamese snuck into our living rooms and kidnapped these people. <laughs> like, that's how the U.S. sees it, as opposed to these guys were literally bo- doing illegal bombing. I, I mean, engaged in a genocidal air war over Vietnam and were captured in the process, right? Yeah. But it's how these like POW mythologies like create this culture of innocence in America. Like we never did anything to deserve this. You know? Yeah. Well, you mentioned the POW wives. I mean, they they played a huge role in 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 all of this. Um, the the POW MIA flag uh, that flies on lots of government buildings today the black the black flag um, mm-hmm. that 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 was a project of the of the, of the uh, the POW's wives uh, organization. They're the ones who brought that brought that in into being and um uh yeah they were uh, they 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 were huge initially the u.s government kind of um kept kept the kept pow's kind of off screen or or didn't didn't make a, a big deal out of it it was the pow wives who then insisted that um, the government begin to mm-hmm. demand a release uh, of, of them, and, um, and and that's when it really became a kind of a public um, issue, which you know lent the the Nixon administration then a card <laughs> that it could play. Right, the war is mm. going to go going to go on yeah. until we get the POWs back. Whereas the Vietnamese are saying, you're not going to get your POWs back until you pull out, uh, until you until you go home. So things kind of stayed dead. It kind of kept the negotiations, if not deadlocked, it was a, an encumberment, uh, encumbrance mm. to to the uh, to the to the process. Yeah, yeah, and I think maybe the ultimate success of all this myth making around. Vietnam, I mean, just to bring it back to the home front a little bit, is the Gulf War, which we've alluded to several times now in 91. And this is probably in my brain where the spitting stuff actually comes from, which is the focus from George H.W. Bush on like, we're going to do the Gulf War differently this time. We're going to behave at home and we're going to beat the Vietnam syndrome once and for all or whatever. Sure. You know? we're, gonna sure. be, we're gonna respect the troops for once. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well that, yeah. that's the origins it, right there too of the the yellow ribbon campaign. Um which mm-hmm. uh, for a while I would I would tell students uh, when I was teaching at Holy Cross College I would say, go home and, and, and dig out that lunch bucket uh, that you had 
for elementary school at the time, and you you probably find a, a yellow ribbon attached to it, uh, or maybe even the family car. You know, there mm-hmm. might be a yellow ribbon laying around, and <laughs> and that mm-hmm. all all of that only made sense uh, if um, if if you believed that Vietnam vets were mistreated when they came home or and or some of our POWs were left behind in Vietnam, right? That they didn't mm-hmm. all, all come home. And well into the 90s, there were still right-wing politicians who were <laughs> trafficking in, in that mythology um, that there were still guys locked mm-hmm. in bamboo cages uh, in 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 Vietnam, someplace, and and you see that the that idea of of forgotten Americans, Americans left behind, which which the Trump people, mm-hmm. you know, really traffic in a lot. People who've been left behind, people, Americans who have been forgotten. The taproot of all of that, folks, is the POW MIA myth that Bruce Franklin Mm -hmm. uh, wrote about in the early 1990s. Great book. The myth that not all of our POWs were accounted for. They didn't all come home. And that the U.S. government is complicit in the cover-up of that, right? Because the U.S. government itself was complicit in, I don't know, the trade-offs, the horse trading that went on, that resulted in some of them being left and being left behind. Again, (laughs) kind of ironically, in some accounts, John McCain emerges as a figure now reviled by ultra right-wing Republicans for probably Mm -hmm. knowing what really happened to some of those POWs who never came home. John McCain knows, right? And again, he, he never, he, he has never told the truth about what he knows, right? That stuff is mm-hmm. still out there. I mean, if you go to, if if your if your screen goes far enough to the right, <laughs> you can you can still find yeah. those. <laughs> <laughs> still find the, find the threads. I mean, we quote yeah, some of that in in our book, uh, dissenting POWs. We mm-hmm. have a little a little segment on that. So. Um- I guess like much of, uh, you know, like we, we were talking about how, um, you know, there has been, you know, especially when, um, you know, the loyal patriots like came back to uh, America, right? Like there was like this, um, you know, myth that implies that there was like a fifth column in the U.S. that stabbed them in the back, right? And that's what brought about the defeat of the war itself, Sure. Um, and, and I'm just curious, like this role of like the stabbed in the bath myths in general, right? Like, um, 
today, like in conservative politics and like, you know, the politics of like counter revolution, like what, what kind of like role does like the narrative and like myth of like stabbed in the back actually play in that? Cause it seems really central um, within like the conservative movement in politics today. Oh, sure. Um, uh, yeah, well, that's, I mean, the, the spitting myth, the, the, the forgotten POWs, um, all, all of those stories construct what is what is really the myth <laughs> that we lost the war because of betrayal at home. We didn't lose the war to the Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. We lost the war to liberals in Congress, to radicals on campus and radicals in, in the streets. And so if we want America to be great again, we got to go after those people who betrayed betrayed that war. And I think that that has become really embedded, uh, as you as you suggest, uh, Monia, in the in the American in the American political in the American political culture. So that if we uh, now nowadays, um, if we oppose, say, police police repression, now it becomes a betrayal, not just wrong, right? It's not just not just something that is incorrect or or inaccurate, that is police brutality. Not just that, but it's an, it's an act of betrayal. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of uh, right. uh, traitor. You're you're a traitor, right? You're a trading that you're a traitor mm-hmm. against something that is much larger than the the technical uh, uh, institutional level uh, issue. Of, of police behavior, right? That there's something, there's an American, yeah. an American way of life, an American ide- ideology that's at stake uh, in this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have to shut this down. Otherwise, it becomes a threat <clears throat> to the very identity, the very meaning of what, of what America is, is, all, is all about. That's, again, kind of what I meant when I said earlier that there's a hole now. There's a meta narrative now that mm-hmm. seeps that seeps down into into everything else. You see, so you're you're not just a mm-hmm. you know a, a dumb academic that uh, doesn't doesn't know what you're talking about when it comes to police brutality. Uh, you're you're um, you're disloyal, right? And 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 you, mm-hmm. right. you 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 dare not you dare not say these things. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean like that. That makes a lot of sense, and it, it, it makes you even like think of just you know you know just recently, right? The repeal of like Roe v. Wade, for instance, um, and the rise of like you know men's rights movements, and you know a lot of other openly misogynistic groups, which have gained a lot of steams, like the incel movement, uh, etc. Right. Um, you know, uh, essentially, and uh, even like to, I was like thinking about this. Um, it was like this pro George Bush song um, that was like kind of back, and they were called like the Wright Brothers, and um, they had this, uh, <laughs> <I remember> this. <laughs> but not right with a W R with like the R like right wing brothers, um, and uh, and you know it, it was a song called like Bush's Right, and I, and I, if I'm like remembering correctly, um, they. Uh, 
it was kind of like a list of grievances, right? And they like name people who were kind of like, you know, semi opposed to like the Iraq war. Um, but then like the name Jane Fonda got brought up in there too, right? And I was like, Jane Fonda, like that's like, <laughs> that's kind of like a, a throwback <laughs> a little bit, right? Like, <laughs> um, and like what I'm kind of seeing is like, even like, you know, Jane Fonda really didn't have like, you know, much to do. I'm sure like, she was like outspoken about like against the Iraq war, but uh, you know, her prevalence was about like Vietnam. And it seems like the woman activist, the loud woman activist, um, you know, anti-war woman hippie activists right is usually like a caricature or a trope right like within like right-wing mythologies and i'm just wondering like what role does like sexism play in creating these mythologies right um like i know that you had stories about hanoi jane um and you know that could have played you know an effect in the rollback of the woman's movement as well um it just seems like there is just something really um there's a visceral attachment to jane fonda that i don't see among other like, you know, like male academics or, you know, um, you know, other people who might have like opposed uh, the war uh, in Vietnam well, there, still today. There's, I mean, there, there's so much, so, so much about what I've been talking about that has really not gotten into mm. the sex and gender dimensions of this. I mean, you use the word mis- misogyny um, and uh, somewhere along in there, I think, Mask masculinity, and the mm-hmm. that that myth that mythology, you see, that that it was American masculinity that that was damaged in the war in Vietnam. That has been the sustaining myth, or one of the sustaining myths, one of the. One of the legs in the continuation of this, right mm-hmm. on in into the present, and and you're right, Jane Fonda is, is a kind of an artifact now, but by dropping her name in, you see, it keeps people of my age kind of attuned to that, uh, and it it kind of widens mm-hmm. the audience. Uh, <laughs> to mm. the, the right wing, the yeah, right wing no. audience, uh, they can always say as a kind of coda. Well, it's it's like Jane Fonda, you know, or you remember <laughs> Hanoi Jane, right? You remember it's it, 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 it's an in, it's an invocation, right? Uh, and if if you, if you get their attention on that. Then there's a whole bunch of other things that you don't have to don't have to explain. Now there's something else here that you said that's important um, the, on, on the betrayal stuff. You see a lot of in the present time, right? It's the religious right, religious right, that is a really a driving force mm-hmm. in a lot of this stuff. You I mean, you sort of you you know you you named it. Um, you know, abortion, uh, uh, homophobia, uh, that, that whole, a lot of this stuff has to do with, with, with mass, with masculinity, has to do with masculinity, has to do with misogyny, has to do with fear of the feminine. You see, it's the, it's mm-hmm. the, it's the fear of that 
not not only the, the feminine that is reified in women, but it's the fear of the of the feminine that abides in all of us. You see, that side, that side of all of us, that the right fears is what bubbled to the surface during the war in Vietnam and cost us victory, you see, uh, in the war. Mm -hmm. And if if you look back, a lot of this is religious. (laughs) A lot lot of the biblical, (laughs) biblical tales, a lot of biblical tales portray women as... Uh, well, seducers, uh, but then also yeah. betrayal, betrayal figures. Um, Eve, right? Eve, Eve is is seduced mm-hmm. by by evil, right? She she bites the apple, right? Samson and Delilah. Mm-hmm. Delilah cuts his hair when, while the dude's asleep. I mean, how how devious yeah. is that, right? <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> what a, a great warrior brought down by women, right? Right, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that that yeah. runs that runs all runs right up into into American history. Now, also in in the Bible, Satan does his dirtiest work in disguise. Satan masquerades as good. Right, Satan mm-hmm. deceives. Satan tricks you, tricks mm-hmm. you into following him, thinking that he, thinking that he is good. You see, now that over time, you see that gets mixed in with mix in to create the misogynist, the misogyny in our in our own culture. You see, it's it's. Women betray women. Be, women betrayal figures don't just betray; they do it through deception. Uh, in the stories, I mean, you can go through which I do. I don't think in this book, mm. but I do it in, in 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 another book. Betrayal figures in the Civil War, in 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 Ken Burns's mm-hmm. film on the Civil War. One of the segments is on. Um, Spies, and he named. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I watched this. He na- there's one man in his in his list of spies, and that was a guy named Pinkerton. Right? <laughs> P- Pink- Pinkerton ran a spy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Pinkerton ran a spy <laughs> ring for the North during the war, mm-hmm. but then. Ken Burns goes on, and all of the spies, both North and South, they're all women, and and they all, yeah, uh, they're all operating under disguise, right? Yeah. I, I, wrote, I wrote about this, by the way. I wrote about this. I, uh, I I took that list. I took Ken Burns's list, and then I went in and I looked. Who are these? I never heard of these characters, right? They're always operating mm-hmm. in. They're always operating in yeah. in in, dis, in disguise. So that was the thing about you see Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda supposedly was a a, a sex symbol, right? 
uh, a Hollywood sex mm-hmm. kitten, sex kitten, right? Who's seduced mm-hmm. young GIs into her persona, right? Supposedly, yeah. uh. supposedly GIs had her as a pinup in Vietnam. Back to that in a second. And then what does she do? She comes out as an anti-war activist. She she seduced. Yeah. She and the seduced. switches flip. She 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 activated the exactly. Yeah. There, there you go. Right now on the pinup thing. Yeah, I was a chaplain's assistant in Vietnam in an artillery unit, and therein I was in lots of bunkers. I was in lots of hooches. I saw more Playboy fin- pinups than I than I ever wanted to see. Uh, every Playboy pinup, probably. I mean, they were like wall to wall pinups. No Jane Fonda, right? And if and if you some place in something I wrote, I have Jane Fonda's uh, measurements uh, from back in the day. Jane Fonda was pencil thin. Um, and as I wrote it, not not Playboy, not pin up, not pin up material, right? She, she was not, she was not, yeah. she was not a, a not. A, so that's part of the that's the mythologizing. See, that's the creation of mm-hmm. the Hanoi Jane mythology, right? Um, which which go, which go, goes which goes along with this. Um, I, I, I may have kind of slid off your question there on you, but no, no, not at all. It, it can it can all be tied together. <laughs> but in, yeah. in, 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 no, it, it, it it definitely is. It certainly hooks into Trump's misogyny, right? The, I mean, women become useful props at best in the stories that he mm. tells, even stories about himself. I mean, when I when I first heard some of these things that. That Trump says he did, right? Wow, you know, you grab him here, you touch him there, you know, and and I did that, and hey, you know what my thought is, guys? You ne- you never did that stuff. You you that's just that's just mm-hmm. much much BS machismo stuff, right? I, he may or may not have okay all, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. <laughs> But it's 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 but more. It says something that he feels comfortable saying it. It's so. more important that his listeners believe that he really did it. You see, the, you see, that's the point. That's the yeah. image. That's the image that he wants to that he wants to create. I know we've had you for a long time, but maybe we could do a lightning round of questions here to finish out uh, just about the future and where we're heading. Uh, and, and so far through the interview, it sounds like it's we're, we're entering the cool zone uh, as far as history goes. Uh, I, I always flunk the right, but, uh, li- lightning rod, lightning round, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I guess right at the bat, I mean, you know, obviously uh, for your generation, Vietnam is going to stand sort of permanently as this major event. And I think for me and Munya, I'm an, apparently an elder millennial. So I guess Munya is a, a younger millennial. I don't know yeah. other version of that. But obviously Iraq and Afghanistan are going to stand out in, in our memories. They hit at the right time, all these kind of things. Um do you think we're in for another round of uh, conservative myth-making around these wars since they uh, didn't go, I think we could say, as uh, planners had hoped? Oh, um, 
all all the pieces are all the pieces are are in place for that. I've already mentioned, you know, the abandoned uh, allies in in Afghanistan, which comes up. You see, that's already being being used mm-hmm. against against the the liberal uh, Joe Joe Biden. Um, that's and mm-hmm. the the botched departure of, of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Um, um, the the gen- the general uh, rap against the liberal Joe Biden. Um, it, it's all it's all there. It's all there, and I don't think you see the. It it took years. It took it took, took a couple of decades before all this stuff on Vietnam really began. The pieces were there, right? But it didn't really begin to come together. Well, Reagan, right? But then, but then the, the mm-hmm. ultra right wing, you know, on into. So we got to wait and see. Um, we got to wait and yeah. see. We got to wait and see. Um, and um, I, I uh, earlier I said that a lot of this now is kind of fold, folding in the Vietnam War mythology and the stuff coming out of Afghan as Afghanistan in Iraq. It's kind of folding kind of folding, kind of cooking. There's kind of a chemistry there, right? That's, that's, that's cooking. Mm-hmm. And um, so it might not come out as purely as the Vietnam War stuff did, but, it, but yeah, I think it's going to, going to come out. Not too lightning there on that question. to be born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean go. like, and, and it, it is interesting that because, uh, you know, in, in the 1960s, there was actually a coherent and threatening to the empire, a left wing movement and an organized left. Right. Like there was like something actually there where you know, now um, it's not so much. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Get- interview's over. He said good point. Let me we have a good Perfect. point. Uh, good- that will be a poll quote. Point. I can't do any. I can't do any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, there's so there, there, so it could there, just manifest in different ways. Is the point? Like, yeah, and there's know. so there's so much just developing now out of this Ukraine and Russia thing, right? That is not look Afghanistan and Iraq are are not in the rear view, view mirror at all. In the same way that Vietnam kind of went in mm-hmm. the rear view mirror when the peace accords were signed. Right. Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. are not past yeah. tense yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, just last year, there were like, you know, a, a lot of media, both like liberal and conservative media were crying about like how the, you know, the plane taking off from Afghanistan was like reminiscent of uh, helicopters, yeah. you know, taking off and, you know, fleeing Vietnam, oh, right? and, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it seemed just like so fresh and like just almost muscle memory. Yeah. Good expression. I, um, well, maybe on that point, uh, do you think the sort of shadow of Vietnam is ever going to fully dissipate, you know, in American politics? Or is it uh, just too useful to, like, beat people over the head with? Oh, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's going to fade. Uh, we're in a we're in a post empire period um, of history. Uh, and, um, and, 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 and that period began with the loss of the war 
in Vietnam. And um, no, we're we're on a we're on a down we're on the down side of the slide. We're sliding. You know, it's not going to it's 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 going to have to be some ex- external event or events that stop that slide and 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 put an end to the revanchist um, lost war culture that we're in. And I don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. I don't see that happening at all. Uh, now I say all, all that very familiar with with the history <laughs> that when major change comes, it's usually not something that somebody saw <laughs> coming, right? But yeah, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't see it. Yeah, no. And so I guess last question for me is that uh, you know. We like movies a lot. Our listeners, not very literate. That's why they listen to us <laughs> instead of read books. So, you know, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> in like your estimation, there's been like tons of movies made, but I want to hear like your opinion since you have just such unique, um, you know, background and have studied uh, and also, you know, lived out this life. Like, has there ever been a good movie made about Vietnam? Because we talked about a lot of bad ones or ones that we criticize, but, um, you know, well, anyone good ones like Apocalypse Now or, you know, like what, what, what are there any movies that you like? <laughs> well, my, my favorite, uh, which is a, a different standard than a good, than good, but the, the, the best, the one. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> is, um, a 1978 film, Go Tell the Spartans. I can see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I never heard of it. Never heard of it. Never, never heard, heard of that it. either. No. Go Tell no. the Spartans. Going to watch it now. Good, yeah. I, I don't know if you want I'm me like to say I'm looking it up right now. Yeah. Um, no, no, please. It, it, yeah. It, yeah, let us know about it. it, no, it yeah. Well, it, it, it foretells that the U.S. is going to lose the war. It was a Hollywood-made movie. Burt mm-hmm. Land start Burt Lancaster. Mm-hmm. Um, the older millennial might know mm-hmm. who, who Burt Lancaster is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's set in the early years uh, of the war, 1963-1964. The U.S. troops are there on the ground. They're advising Vietnamese, and they're fighting on the site where a French unit was massacred by the Vietnamese, right? This is the start of the storyline. Mm-hmm. And and the Americans lose <laughs> on that same site. <laughs> yeah. Now, the title of the film is Go Tell the Spartans, which comes out of a Greek story, 300 BC, uh, against the Persians, there's some gravestones. I think one of the great gravestones mm-hmm. has on it, go tell the Spartans. Are you getting the drift here? Mm-hmm. Go tell. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go go tell Washington. Yep. Um, you aren't going to, you aren't going to, you aren't going to win this. That's, that's my favorite no. film. Um, but so happy that you mentioned Apocalypse Now, because that's on my list. Of, of films, to- total fantasy, right? But as you know, 
truth is oftentimes conveyed through fantasy, through fiction. And when I saw that, I saw it with a friend, and when it was over, I elbowed her, and I said, whoever made this film, and I had no idea who Francis Ford Coppola was, I said, whoever made this film really knew what that war was about. So there's that. And, and a, third, a third one is the Robin Williams film, um, Good Morning Vietnam, 1988, yeah. 1989 film, I think. Um, that really gets kind of like Apocalypse Now. It, it kind of gets into the, what do you call it? The, the, I don't know, the back room or the, the uh, I don't know, the DNA yeah. of, of, of what the world mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Robin Williams plays a. Do you, have you seen it or know know the film? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, okay. absolute classic. Yeah, Brian my, has actually my, recommended it to me. Like he's he uh, talks about it a lot. Oh, my okay. uh, dad was a big fan of this movie, so we watched it a lot when I was a kid. Uh-huh. <laughs> also, we were big Robin Williams heads in our house, so you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was at the right age to be a massive Robin Williams fan, so uh-huh. <laughs> a little different than his normal roles. <laughs> there, there's the three that I always pull out. Well, that will give our listeners something to do. But uh, for us, you know, we would like to thank you, Professor Limke, for coming to talk to us. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. This is so been a great career. pleasure. We want to conclude with these thoughts on the function of political myths from Jerry Limke's book, The Spitting Image. Myths help people come to terms with difficult periods of their past. They provide explanations for why things happened. Often, explanations offered by myths help reconcile disparities between a group's self-image and the historical record of the group's behavior. The myth of the spat-upon veteran functions in this way by providing an alibi for why most powerful and righteous nation on earth, as America perceives itself to be, lost the war to an underdeveloped Asian nation. The myth says, in effect, that we were not beaten by the Vietnamese, but were defeated on the home front by fifth columnists. The myth also functions to reverse the verdict of history, to find the innocent guilty and the guilty innocent. The indicters themselves were indicted, as the responsibility for the loss of the war was shifted from those whose policies had failed to those who were critical of the policies all along. In the process, the resolve and resourcefulness of the Vietnamese people was denied, and the credibility and character of Vietnam veterans, who were the most convincing witnesses for the case against the government, was attacked. Initially dismissed as imposters and then discredited as deviant malcontents, this generation of bad war veterans were eventually recast as mad war veterans. The myth sullies the reputation of those individuals and organizations who dared to dissent and strips Vietnam veterans of their true place in history as gallant fighters against the war. The identity crisis supposedly suffered by Vietnam veterans because they were denied the military victory of their youth might be better laid at the feet of a culture that confers manhood on warriors, but not on peacemakers. 
The money's not the deal, the cow's not the deal, it's freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive uh, government. free real estate. dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de ese Space.